What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Mythic Existence. I'm your host, Jack Daly. Today, we have a fascinating episode as we'll be discussing contemporary legendary monsters. We'll build off one of our most popular episodes, the Monster Theory episode, by discussing North American monsters that are at times believed to exist and explore what cultural purposes these creatures serve. By the end, we'll hope to see these beings have a complex and multifaceted existence and should be studied as such. So sit back, relax, and enjoy another episode of Mythic Existence. So the source for today's episode is this new book, uh, North American Monsters, a contemporary legend casebook that is edited by uh, David Puglia, or Puglia, I'm not sure how to pronounce his name. Um, But David was a graduate of Penn State Harrisburg, which is where I'm going to be starting my PhD in this fall. I'm not sure if I've talked about that on the podcast. And I'm going to be studying monstrosity and monster legends, and particularly what are called contemporary monster legends. If you've listened to my previous episode about contemporary legends you'll remember that a legend is something that is set in a historical place and time that is believed to be true. And it's supposed to be immediate. And that's what we mean by contemporary, as in it's happening in a contemporary setting. It's happening at the point in time when the legend was occurring. And that's what we have with monsters. We have stories about them being sighted and being seen in particular places, in particular times, and there's often a deeper meaning behind them. One of my most popular episodes is the Monster Theory episode, where I talk about how monsters are basically a metaphor that allow us to express our fears and anxieties and um, things that we have a hard time really discussing or articulating. So that's one explanation for monsters. But as we'll see, folklorists, we will take people at their word. We'll listen to what they say. There's there's value behind listening to people who have said that they have sightings of these creatures. And part of the way that folklore has moved in the last century is away from looking at folklore as being a text that exists in a vacuum, but also by looking at it as a performance and looking at what the teller is saying and how the audience interacts with them and looking at sort of the the things in between. What can we say? What is really being expressed through these stories? So we know that monsters are folklore because they are part of the folkloric process of variation and repetition and ultimately tradition. Again, I've talked about this on my What is Folklore podcast, but folklore is marked by variation and tradition, meaning that there's more than one form and that it is hand down or passed down 
informally without, you know, any kind of rules or regulations. And one thing that folklorists do is look at motifs and other, you know, tail type indexes is what we have to look at similarities between stories. You know, so the Mothman and its story is really similar to a, a lot of other stories about, you know, flying beings, flying monsters, particularly the Garuda, which is a, you know, a legendary figure from Hindu mythology. One thing that's interesting is that North American monsters are often secular, not sacred. And that's a point that's made in the book. Um, and that's an that's a change that has occurred from the Garuda, the flying monster, which is a sacred monster, to the Mothman, which is secular, meaning that, you know, it's it's not part of the the divine structure like the the, the Garuda was. One thing that I think is kind of the not I wouldn't say the downfall, but one of the things I didn't love about the monster theory reader, which is really the the Bible of monster studies, and I, I really think that this book uh, is going to be in that kind of pantheon of of monster literature as far as from the academic perspective is uh, concerned, is that that the monster theory reader was really focused on like media representations, which is totally a fine thing to research in monstrosity, looking at, you know, Frankenstein and looking at movies, uh, Dracula, stuff like that. Those are very popular things to talk about. But this book really focuses on creatures that are, are, are existing in the real world, in, in a sense, you know, like Mothman, um, like the lake monsters that we have all throughout the country, the Bear Lake monster, there's a chapter about that. And that was from about 30 minutes away from where I lived at in Utah. And I, it's, it's in Idaho, but uh, I live near the border of Utah and Idaho. And I've gone slip, swimming in the lake that the Bear Lake monster is reputed to live at. So I, I, I really, I like studying these legendary monsters as opposed to media monsters. One thing that uh, David, I'm just going to refer to him as uh, Dr. David, maybe, is there's there's kind of a feedback loop between media and these actual monsters, though. Um, there's a chapter about Slenderman, which uh, I've written book reviews that have gotten published in academic journals about. That's kind of, there, there's a little bit of a give and take between media and how it's gotten out and about how it kind of creates the monsters. One way we can see that is through the Chupacabra, which there's an argument made by the author of the Chupacabra chapter um, that this, the creature was actually originated from a movie called Species, and the person had seen the movie and then uh, basically projected its image into her world and said that she had seen that creature, but the, the description is literally a one-to-one match of a monster from the movie. It's interesting, there's some discussions about how media, and in particular newspapers, are perpetrators of folklore. One particular example is the Mar- uh, Maryland Goatman, or the Maryland Goatman, which... 
basically what happened is this, a student did research uh, about hermits in the specific area of um, Maryland. And he found out that there were these legends associated with the hermits and that one of them was referred to as the goat man and that he lived at this bridge and he did archival research for it. And a local reporter went in and found, found the archival research, found what he had dug up about these legends and then repeated it in the newspapers. And that's what really led to the explosion of the legend. But the, the reporter kind of mixed things up and so there's a muddying that occurred. It's often folklore is kind of like a game of telephone. The thing that you start with isn't the thing that you end with. And like newspapers have historically been great like repeaters of folklore. And I think that actually one of the main things now is television programs are one of the, you know, prime ways that folklore information gets spread. But part of the problem is that oftentimes it's not folklore, it's doing it. And again, the book makes this case, but what if you were to go to the, a bookstore or look you know, on the TV shows that are occurring, it's usually either people who are overzealous about trying to prove that the monsters exist in a biological sense or people that are trying to debunk it and say that it's irrational and it's just a misinterpretation of their experiences. Whereas folklorists take a little bit more of a delicate approach and are, are trying to look at the, the cultural meanings behind what's going on. Because monsters are really ways to express stories about our everyday life and our, our group values. One really interesting chapter was, like I was saying, about the Bear Lake monster. Of course, this is at the heart of Mormon country. And in that case, one of the sons of like a church elder said that he had seen the Bear Lake monster. And it was taken on his authority that this really happened. And the author that wrote the chapter was also Mormon, so he didn't quite get there. But was what was really going on is that people were just willing to believe the authority figure on their word. Kind of like what was going on in their religion. They, they were totally willing to believe, you know, these goofy things. And it turns out that the monster was a hoax. So, um, another thing that I really like about researching contemporary legend monsters is that they're what are called hyper locals, which means that they're associated with very specific places. Some of the examples are the Jersey devil and the Jersey devil is associated with a particular location called uh, Leeds point. And mother Leeds was supposedly the person who gave birth to the Jersey devil. The quick story is she, she basically uh, gave birth to a, a 13th child, I believe it was. It's either 7th or 13th. And she had once prayed that if she had another one, that it would be the devil. And it, she she did give, give birth to uh, a devilish creature. Another hyperlocal is the Lake Lieberman monster, which is at, uh, I think, Bingham, Binghamton College. Uh, and 
the lake is named after a student that pretty much conjured stories about uh, this monster that lived in the lake. The Maryland Goatman and the Bear Lake Monster would also be examples. There's not a chapter about this in the book, but another hyperlocal monster is the Beast of Bray Road, which is the famous werewolf that lives in Wisconsin. So oftentimes, these monsters aren't like famous, like you know, the Bigfoot as a whole, but there's this particular monster that is tied to a, a specific place. I've never heard of the Lake Lieberman monster. Another one of the purposes of the book is to provide a definition of monsters, at least in the introduction that Dr. David has written. And if we think back to the monster theory episode that I did, the root of the word monster is monere, and it basically means a portent. It points to something else. So the monster is pointing to another meaning. It's warning us of this deeper fear or anxiety that we have. So I'm going to work towards that definition and kind of go over the process that he went through to get there. Like I was saying, folklorists aren't interested in necessarily if a monster exists in the sense that a cat or a dog exists. Folklorists are really trying to get to the deeper meaning behind what the legends are saying. But they will also take into account the actual sightings that people have had. A lot of the creatures that we have in our you know, natural world started out as cryptids or as monsters, as things that had legends attached to them, but weren't necessarily, um, you know, accepted into the scientific world. The gorilla is an example of one of those. And one of my favorite episodes, uh, or one of my favorite chapters is, uh, Angus Gillespie's chapter about the New Jersey devil. And I was thinking episodes because he's on the Monster Quest episode of the Jersey Devil that really shows the dichotomy between these people who are either trivializing the legends or trying to debunk them. He says that we should approach them in a different way. He says we should think about who is telling the legend. What are the circumstances of the telling of that legend? Who is the audience? What is the function of the story? And why has it lasted so long? So that's really great building blocks for people to think of when they're searching and researching uh, contemporary legend monsters. Folklorists like to look at what's called emic understandings. An emic person is an insider for a group. There's emic and there's edic. Edic is an outsider. Emic is an insider. So we're trying to figure out what are the insiders saying? What are the New Jersey devil people, or the, the people in New Jersey, what are they thinking about the New Jersey devil? So that's a, a key point that I really think needs to be stressed. One thing that I talked about on the Monster Theory episode is that monsters aren't, you know, eternal. They're, they're, they don't exist in the universal sense. They are created, not born. Nothing is born a monster. Monstrosity is defined by what is not monstrous, right? So that monstrosity points to the purpose that they're serving. And we can, if we can think of it, what are they monstrous about? 
for example, the Mothman, you know, there was a bridge collapse that occurred in conjunction with Mothman legends. What is the Mothman pointing to? What is it? Uh, p- what is the portent that it's it's pointing towards? It might be the the crumbling infrastructure of rural America. That might be what one thing that the legend is uh, trying to express. They use the term the Rumpelstiltskin principle to kind of explain the fact that monsters are a type of language that we have to express things that we don't really have the words for. And one of the main things about legends is that they're supposed to be, you know, possible. They could possibly occur in our real world. And so that's the possibility of their existence is what they what makes them legendary and that's so plausibility that's what makes a legend another reason that monsters might be thriving today is because of the internet age in folkloristics we have a term called the hypermodern which basically refers to things like you know internet usage and commercialization things that we associate with the modern world electronics technology one of the main ways that i see monster legends circulating nowadays is on places like tiktok and again there's not a lot of great academic folklore discourse on there i've tried to do it and i'm terrible at it and so again it's kind of a little bit like monsters are completely real or like no monsters aren't real at all there's no subtlety to that discourse So ultimately, the definition that Dr. David arrives at is a legendary monster is a strange, frightening, or unusual human or creature, real or imaginary, believed or not believed, that is, at the time of the telling, purported not scientifically verified to exist in our world. So humans can be monsters. There's a lot of discourse surrounding uh, monstrosity with, you know, types of humans. We've seen that the hermit was turned into the goat man, and that might say something about our attitudes towards, you know, people who are kind of homeless or live on the fringes of society, which is where, you know, like a lot of monster legends occur is on the fringes, on in the liminal spaces. So I, I had a little discussion, I mean, I had a whole episode about contemporary legends, why folklorists prefer that term as opposed to urban legends, and it's basically, like I was saying, there's, contemporary means that it's immediate when it's happening, and that's kind of what these urban legends are. There's nothing really urban about them, and so that's why we call, we call them uh, contemporary legend monsters. Oftentimes, going back to the discussion about the performance aspect of, you know, the, the folklore telling of monstrosity, oftentimes the, the teller has to splice monsters with other urban legends. And so there's kind of a Frankenstein quality to monsters themselves. Oftentimes they're stitched together is the term they use. Um, you can the, the Jersey Devil itself is an assemblage of many other creatures. 
And one thing that is, I think, interesting about just the development of monsters and how we view them and our attitudes towards them is it used to be at the beginning that, you know, like in the ancient world, the monsters were out there. They were never in our in our village, in our city. It was, you know, the... I forget what the term is. The uh, anthro- anthropomorphi, I think, is the term for the creatures that have no heads and their eyes are on their chests. That comes from uh, Herodotus and like Shakespeare has references to it. Those were not. Those were in a whole different place. But today, the monsters are here. They're living, like I said, in our liminal spaces, underneath the bridge. They're on our college campuses. They're on the edges of our civilization. The Japanese have legends of tanuki, which are basically these shape-shifting uh, little critters with magical testicles. And they, they live in between the space of the mountains and the town. They're, they're on this, this edge space. So really, one thing that monsters do is they express our socio-environmental anxieties, is the term used in the book. They, they live in areas that are threatened, and they tell us about our attitudes towards those areas, like the bridge, the infrastructure that we're worried might be kind of crumbling, and we can see that crumbling happening around us. Ultimately, monster legends are, are what, call, what are called migratory legends. They're coming from one place, and they're spreading in a migratory fashion. You know, like that's that's how the the Mothman is. Like it it, it migrated in our con- in our consciousness and our stories from the ancient world into the modern world, and that's kind of what's happened with a lot of monsters, just in general. So I think one of the main things that monsters do is they they challenge kind of the worldview that we have, and one of the reasons that I love them is they the they express. Again, this is the words that the book uses, but they they express the urge for a romantic exploration of unsolved mysteries. And that's one thing that I've always felt the urge inside of myself for. Uh, But we need more, you know, legends, monster legend scholars. We need more people that are not just trivializing them or trying to debunk them. The book makes note of what's called the, the vicious cycle explanation for why people don't study them. They don't study them because they're not respected, and they're not respected because they're not studied. But if we can study them with a little bit more, like I was saying, subtlety and you know, trying to really be academic about it in the sense that you can you listen to people what have have to say, but you also think more about, you know what what are the fears what are the anxieties where does this this fit into the larger history of our storytelling are people telling the stories why are they not telling the stories those are the type of questions that we have to ask so that's it for today's episode please follow mythic existence on social media like and subscribe on youtube and leave a five-star review on your podcast platform. Thanks for listening. See you next time.